Welcome back to Gray Matters, the podcast of the Seaboard and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm Jace Lingdon, the Gray Center's Research Director. Joining me today is Adam White, Co-Executive Director of the Center. Hi, Adam. Hi, Jace. Good to be back. Today, we're joined by University of San Diego law professor Michael D. Ramsey. Mike wrote a paper defending, from an originalist perspective, the Supreme Court's recent invocations of the Major Questions Doctrine. He wrote the paper as part of a Gray Center Research Roundtable we hosted last fall. You can find his article on our website or by clicking the link in our show notes. Mike, welcome to Gray Matters. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. For those who may not have seen your article yet, can you give us a brief summary of your argument? Sure. So my article is called An Originalist Defense of the Major Questions Doctrine. Uh, and uh, the Major Questions Doctrine has been uh, criticized by a number of originalists and textualists as, as a departure from uh, the appropriate role of courts in construing statutes. And my paper is a response to that. Uh, and it's a response to a, a particular uh, line of argument about the Major Questions Doctrine. Uh, so the Major Questions Doctrine is a uh, doctrine of interpretation. Uh, it doesn't make clear, though, uh, in, in the way the Supreme Court has described it fully, uh, whether that means that what it's trying to do is understand the actual meaning of the statute that it's construing. Uh, which is some, sometimes called a linguistic canon, as trying to trying to see what the uh, the ordinary meaning, uh, original meaning of the statute was. Or, uh, on the other hand, it might be something that's sometimes called a substantive canon, uh, which is where uh, the the court invokes some other value that's external to the statute uh, and says uh, where a statute seems to conflict with that value. Um, we're not going to, and the statute is ambiguous, we're not going to read the statute uh, to conflict, conflict with the value unless it's fairly clear what Congress wanted to do. Um, and that, that second uh, approach to statutory interpretation uh, is not uh, trying to find uh, entirely uh, the true meaning of the statute. It, it might result in the court giving the statute uh, somewhat less of a scope uh, than the true best meaning of the statute uh, allows. Uh, so some people understand the, uh, the major questions doctrine as a linguistic canon, and they've defended it on that ground, but uh, that has also been sharply criticized. Um, I'm leaving that debate to a side, uh, and what I'm addressing is instead the question about whether the major questions doctrine could be defended as a substantive canon. Uh, and, whether, and specifically whether it could be uh, defended on originalist grounds uh, as a substantive canon. Uh, or to put it another way, um, do courts have the power uh, to use, and under a proper originalist understanding of, of the court's power, uh, do the courts have the power uh, to read statutes narrowly in this sense, uh, more narrowly than uh, their uh, the best assessment of their original meaning would be uh, in order to protect uh, some other extra statutory value. So that's, that's the question that, that I put forward. Assuming that it can't be, major questions doctrine can't be defended as a linguistic canon, I don't take any position on that, but assuming it can't be, uh, could it be defended as a substantive canon? Uh, so that's, that's the question that the paper asks. Uh, and then the paper's answer is, uh, yes, it can be defended uh, as a substantive canon. Uh, so what I look at is whether, uh, under an original understanding of the judicial power, uh, whether it was understood that courts had this power uh, to create substantive canons. Uh, and uh, in particular, uh, I understand it as an, an intersection um, between the court's judicial power uh, the power to say what the law is, uh, and uh, the court's oath, which is uh, to support the Constitution. Uh, so really, one might say that courts have to support the Constitution by enforcing statutes as best they understand them, without giving any weight to some extra statutory value. That's the argument against there being substantive canons. Uh, but 
what I found, what I looked at is uh, court practice in the, uh, in the early post-ratification period. Uh, and what I found was that courts actually did create substantive canons. Uh, not necessarily the major questions doctrine. I don't, I don't think that the major questions doctrine goes uh, all the way back to the founding era. But other substantive canons uh, do. And in the paper, I give uh, what I think are two uh, particularly striking examples. Uh, what one is uh, called the Charming Betsy canon, which is the uh, proposition that uh, courts will not construe statutes to violate international law um, unless they are clear or the statute is ambiguous, we, the courts will construe it uh, to not violate international law. If the statute is clear, well, we, we, we would enforce it to violate international law. Congress doesn't have a constitutional obligation to, to follow international law. Um, but courts uh, don't uh, enforce ambiguous statutes to violate international law. This, this is something that goes back to the, to the very early Marshall Court uh, and uh, it was most forcefully enunciated in a case called Murray versus Charming Betsy. So that's why it's called the Charming Betsy Canon, which is kind of a funny name for it. But uh, that's where it comes from. But that's one of these examples. And I don't think that in looking at uh, the way the courts described this in the early days, I don't think this was founded on, it's not a linguistic canon. It's not, not founded on the idea that Congress would never violate international law because they, they don't, that doesn't seem to be the assumption behind it. Rather, the assumption behind it is that it's very bad especially bad for the United States in the early days when we were a weak nation, uh, no army, not much of a navy, and international law tended to be enforced by war, uh, it was a bad idea for the United States to be violating international law. So the courts wanted to be very careful and not construe uh, statutes to violate international law, unless it was clear that they did, because otherwise the court risked putting the United States in a very difficult foreign policy situation. Um, so again, it's not based on the idea that um, that's what the statute meant. It's rather based on the idea that courts, in the face of an ambiguous statute, want to be careful uh, not to make a really costly mistake. Uh, so that's, that's really that that canon, the Charming Betsy canon, is really the centerpiece of the, uh, of the article. But I give a couple other examples, and, and let me give just one other, uh, particularly because this is one that's been mentioned by the Supreme Court a couple of times as uh, sort of a, uh, an example of something that uh, is a precursor of major questions doctrine in terms of substantive canon. That is um, the, uh, the presumption uh, that Congress doesn't enact uh, retroactive laws. Now, of course, the Constitution says there's no ex post facto law, and we understand that to mean that you can't have a retroactive criminal law. But it, in the 18th century understanding, ex post facto only applied to criminal laws. Um, so you might have uh, instead, though, a retroactive civil law, and that would not be unconstitutional. Um, but it would be unfair, because uh, it, it would be uh, a situation of changing the rules after the fact. Uh, which was regarded at the time, and you know, still is, uh, as, is really something that oughtn't to be done. It's a matter of justice, even if it's constitutional for Congress to do it. Well, there's a long-standing uh, canon that, uh, that laws will not be construed to have a retroactive effect unless they're clear. So it's another one of these clear statement rules, uh, like Charing Betsy canon, uh, dates from, well, it's, it, it actually has antecedents in English law, but it, it dates from, in terms of the use by the Marshall Court, dates from around the same time in the early 19th century. And uh, again, the court said, we won't construe an ambiguous statute to have a retroactive effect. Um, and the reason for this is not because we necessarily think that Congress wouldn't pass a law that has retroactive effect, because actually they do it. Uh, so rather, it's that we don't want to make it, we the court don't want to make a mistake and make a law retroactive when that wasn't intended, because that's so unfair to the parties that are affected. Uh, so again, it's, it, this uh, approach is born out of a caution that courts, when faced with ambiguous statutes, will not always get it right. Um, and the cost of extending the statute uh, is substantial in terms of some sort of substantive value that is shared by uh, the society. Uh, and the costs of uh, reading the statute too narrowly are not that great because if Congress really wants a, a broader extension of the statute, they can just pass it. They can repass it with more clear wording uh, because all of these things are things that Congress could do if it wants to. The courts just ask, 
that the Congress be clear about. So, in, in any case, the, the idea of a substantive canon is something that has roots in the early post-ratification period uh, in the Marshall Court. Uh, the federal courts believed that they had the power to do this, and it was not controversial at all. I couldn't find any uh, criticism uh, of, uh, of either of these uh, two camps. Uh, so that's what the paper is, is mostly about, and it, it, it says that on the original understanding, that the original understanding of the judicial power seemed to include this power. And then, uh, you know, the, the final question, which I, I concede is a somewhat more difficult one, is that, um, well, does that mean that courts can create new canons, new substantive canons? Uh, they had the good because I don't think the argument that the major questions doctrine goes back into the early 19th century. I don't think that argument works very well. Um, it probably has deeper antecedents than some people are willing to admit, but I think that it probably doesn't go back to the Marshall Court. In any event, my paper argument doesn't depend on that. Uh, my paper says that I, I do think that the courts can uh, create new substantive canons. Uh, so one example of that is is the federalism canons. The, the, presumption that Congress, we will not read ambiguous statutes to interfere with values of federalism. Uh, that's a rel more modern creation. And it's a substantive canon, and it's in the same vein as uh, the ones that I've talked about and the major questions doctrine. And indeed, I think that um, particularly the Charming Bessie canon is an example of the courts creating a new canon. That, that, can that canon doesn't have uh, deep historical roots. It's something that the Marshall Court came up with. So I think if the Marshall Court's able to come up with a canon like uh, the protection of international law, um, then modern courts are able to come up with, with canons uh, like the major question doctrine. And then the final point of the paper is that the major questions doctrine does protect uh, an important substantive value, um, which is that Congress should be the one that exercises the legislative power uh, and not make uh, not pass off uh, important legislative decisions to the executive or to agencies um, through vaguely worded language. This isn't a claim that there's a non-delegation rule uh, in the Constitution. Some people made that claim, but I, my article, article doesn't depend on that. My article only depends on the proposition um, that, sort of, that as a matter of uh, political and institutional design, um, we want Congress to be making the important decisions about legislative power, or at least we don't want to lightly construe statutes to pass that power off uh, when Congress might not be intending that. Um, so that then brings the idea of the substantive canons back to um, the major questions doctrine uh, and provides a rationale uh, for the courts exercising the judicial power to uh, establish this substantive canon. That is the basic overview of the paper, uh, and so I think I will, I will stop there and see what you think of it. Well, it's a fascinating paper. Uh, and just for folks who just, I guess I'll just repeat this for folks who haven't already seen the paper. It's on our homepage right now at the Gray Center. It's titled An Originalist Defense of the Major Questions Doctrine. And Mike, as you just unpacked there, this paper is first and foremost a, a, a very brief but very thorough summary of substantive canons uh, and their their provenance in our constitutional system. But maybe maybe I'd ask you to unpack that just a little bit more about how this connects to the, ju the constitutional judicial power. What is it in the Constitution that actually empowers judges to make, uh, to, to use substantive canons when construing laws? And I just, let me add two quick caveats before you jump in. First of all, sure, judges have been doing it for a long time, but you know, judges have been making mistakes for a long time. So it might be that the early uh, the, the the judges in our early constitu constitutional system just misinterpreted their own constitutional power. Uh, and second, I just add, our early judges they did a lot of things that we wouldn't necessarily see them do now. They were federal. There were federal common law judges at the very outset. Something that we've we've uh, disavowed rightly or wrongly for a century now, but, but federal, perhaps federal judges had a, a broader sense of their constitutional power uh, than we'd, we'd, we'd afford them today. Um, how should we root this instinct, even if it goes back to the beginning of our constitutional system, how should we root it in the Constitution's grant of judicial power to the judges? Well, I think you're right, asking the right question there, that uh, it, it is a question of what, what does the judicial power encompass and what, what does the um, judicial power exclude? Uh, and it's hard to know how to get at that um, other than to look at 
judicial practice, I think. Uh, there, the, the Constitution doesn't expand on the question of what the judicial power encompasses. So one thing you can say is that uh, in, in the English system, uh, they did appear to have these kinds of canons. So the presumption against retroactive laws uh, is, is something that existed in English law. Uh, the judges applied that uh, against statutes of uh, Parliament, uh, even though they were in a judicial system which assumed parliamentary supremacy. Uh, they didn't. They weren't construing that against some kind of a, a, a constitution uh, apart from you know the unwritten English traditional system, uh, but which, which gave Parliament superiority. But the the English courts did have uh, substantive canons uh, like this. Uh, and, and then you see it carried over into uh, U.S. practice in the uh, in the early days, without uh, objection that I'd been able to identify. I, it seemed like that this was uh, just sort of not challenged. So in that sense, it's different from uh, federal common law, which, as you know, was extremely controversial uh, in the uh, in the early days of the Republic, and and was uh, was ultimately rejected um, by the early 19th century court. Uh, after indeed using it for a while, but but not using it at all in an uncontested way. So to me, it it makes a, a significant amount of difference whether an early practice, because I I'm entirely agree with you that a, an early early practice is not definitive for originalists because early practices could just be wrong. Uh, they they could just be contrary to the Constitution's command, and it's not something nothing magical about. An early practice, but I do think that an early practice that is not controversial carries a lot more weight than an early practice that was contested. And so the early practice just represents, uh, uh, you know, one side of the argument. Uh, but here, I, I didn't see uh, anything that indicated this this early practice of of substantive canons was contested. And so, to me, that that distinguishes it from something like federal common law and it makes uh the it uh, the early practice more weighty yeah let me let me just follow up and i think i'm going to ask this when you when you presented the paper at a roundtable at the gray center last fall i noticed the title of your paper is an originalist defense of the major questions doctrine but not a not a textualist defense um should i should i read this as an originalist but not textualist defense or are you saying this is an originalist and textualist defense Yes. Now you're you're correctly interpreting the title that that it is a an originalist uh, and and not textualist uh, defense. It it is it does not. I, I actually think that a substantive canons. I, I agree with the criticism of substantive canons to this extent that that they aren't textualist. I mean, I think I think that's that's just in the the nature and definition of a substantive canon as it in uh as compared to a linguistic canon linguistic canons if they're done right uh are consistent with textualism substantive canons are not because a substantive canon uh, avowedly says that in some circumstances we're, we're not going to go with what appears to be the best understanding of the text, although the text is ambiguous it's a close question but if you look at it it's 5149 one way we're actually going to go with a 49 because we're worried about making a big mistake. That's what a substantive canon does. So I think textualists are entitled to criticize that uh, as uh, a departure from uh, from textualism. But but the question is, does um, does that mean as a departure from originalism? And while I think broadly speaking, I do think that textualism follows from orig from originalism, and I, I consider myself generally speaking to be a textualist. Uh, but but I think there are situations in which originalism might signal uh, a power on the part of the judiciary to depart from textualism, and that's what I think this is evidence of. This seems like a good time to bring up that recent discussion of the major questions doctrine from Justice Barrett in the student loan case. Biden v. Nebraska, she denied that the major questions doctrine was a substantive canon, but she seemed to say it was an interpretive tool. Can you unpack that a little bit and maybe tell us where your account of the doctrine might differ from hers? Uh, sure. Uh, so that that's keying on this distinction between the linguistic canon and the substantive canon uh, that that I mentioned earlier, and so. She, she's very much committed to textualism, and so it. And she wrote a, a, a great law review article before she became a, a judge, 
uh, about substantive canons and, and about how substantive canons have some significant tension with textualism. And that you know, goes into to Adam's question. Uh, and so she's worried as a textualist about the major questions doctrine. Uh, and so she wants to find a way uh, to defend it as a linguistic canon. So, so what the way this argument goes, and this this has some uh, significant um, scholarship, scholarly support too. Uh, so, uh, Elon Werman from Arizona State, for example, who you probably know, uh, is very well known in this area, and others has an article about uh, how uh, the major questions doctrine should be understood as linguistic canon. The way that argument works is uh, that we would say, well, look, it just doesn't seem likely that Congress or indeed anyone uh, would convey very great power, very delegate, very great power, uh, in sort of ambiguous language. So typically, if you're going to give an agent uh, authority, and it's it's a sort of just a sweeping authority, you think you'd be clear about that. Uh, and so uh, the idea is then we we would presume that Congress would not be giving uh, sweeping authority. Uh, in an ambiguous way. All we're doing, she would say, and Elon would say, uh, is uh, we're just giving the best reading of the text of the statute that we can. It's just it's just a tool like other linguistic canons, uh, like, you know, expresso unius, uh, you know, if, you, if the statute says one thing, it, it impliedly negates another similar thing. Um, that, that, that's just the way we use language. Uh, and so she's just saying that's the way we use language as well. Now, where my article fit, my article fits in is I don't actually argue against that proposition. Um, I, I regard my argument, my article, as just an argument in the alternative. Um, if you if you don't buy the textualist defense of the major question doctrine, and I got to admit I'm a little skeptical of it, but. I don't say that in the article. Um, all, all I say is, if you don't buy the textualist defense as put forth by Justice Barrett, uh, then uh, here's another way that, as an originalist, you can reconcile yourself to the uh, major questions doctrine. So I view my article as a supplement rather than an attack on uh, Justice Barrett's position. Many times when people are debating the major questions doctrine, it's in the context of Congress either not legislating enough for the executive usurping the bounds of its own power. Is there a danger that if we understand the major questions doctrine as a substantive canon, that the courts might be usurping legislative power? Or how, where's the line there? Uh, well, I, I think that's, that, that is a concern, right? And that's, that's what the textualists will say, is that uh, courts should courts should just give their best assessment of what the statute means and not put thumbs on the scale uh, in any particular direction. And to the extent that the court puts a thumb on the scale, then uh, you might regard it as uh, taking over legislative power. I think uh, that there's a couple of responses to that. Uh, f first of all, uh, I see the substantive canons as, as only being limiting canons. And I, I describe in the article, I will, I will sometimes describe the major questions doctrine as a limited canon. In other words, it, it always acts to constrain the scope of a statute. It, it never acts to expand uh, the scope of a statute. So, so you never have judges going beyond what the uh, most uh, the best reading of the statute is. Um, you only have judges not quite going up to uh, the the edge of the statute, as it were, because they're not sure where that edge is. So it's a um, it, it's an exercise in judicial restraint or in in judicial caution. Um, and I th I think that's very different than judges exercising legislative power to create law where, where there isn't uh, a uh, a foundation uh, for them doing that. Uh, and the other thing is that I think uh, that I think justifies the substantive canons is that you're, you're weighing two values, really. I and mean, one, one value is that um, the judge not giving full effect to the statute. And, and I concede that that is a concern. Um, the judges typically do have the obligation to give full effect to a statute. But on the other hand, uh, you have to weigh that against uh, the 
risk that judges will uh, overinterpret a statute, that they will push it further than Congress intended. Because remember, this, this only comes into play in a situation where the statute's ambiguous. Uh, and if the statute's ambiguous, you, you just th- there is a risk of judicial error. Um, there's a risk of judicial error both ways, right? The, ju- the judge might read the statute too narrowly, or the judge might read the statute too broadly. Um, but I, I think in situations where uh, a broad reading of the statute would uh, infringe another important value, um, it's better for the judges to be restrained, um, to avoid an error in that direction. And if they make an error in the other direction, that is, if they, if they underread the statute, um, then that can be corrected by Congress. Uh, uh, relatively easily. Whereas, and I think this is an important point because it relates to how this uh, lines up with the, with the executive branch. If if the executive branch claims a broad delegated power from an ambiguous statute, and the court agrees, and and that's a mistake. If the court makes a mistake and and finds too much delegation, more than there actually is in the statute, it's very hard now for Congress to claw that back because Congress would have to pass a statute that says. No, we think the court got it wrong. But the problem is that the way the court got it wrong gave a bunch more power to the executive. So the executive is very likely to veto the statute. Uh, and uh, since an override is unlikely, uh, you, you have a situation where it's very, it, there's no way to correct, there's no easy way to correct that error. Whereas if you make an error in the other direction, you, you underread the statute, um, you, don't, it, you don't recognize em- enough delegated power. Then it's fairly easy for Congress and the President to get together if that's what is actually intended and say, oh, yeah, no, actually, you're wrong about that. We did intend to give them the power. So that, these reasons add up to me not worrying as much about um, the risk of, of courts underreading statutes, although I, it is uh, certainly a risk. Uh, but I think it's outweighed by the other considerations. Now, when you said earlier that a lot of this is about restraint, first, I didn't know if you meant judicial restraint of themselves, you know, judicial self-restraint or judicial restraint of, of, of agencies or Congress. Throughout all these debates around the major questions doctrine, uh, its critics uh, accuse the, the courts, including the Supreme Court, of effectively acting in a form of judicial activism, where they're putting the thumb on the scales against agencies, um, uh, erring on the side of constraining agency power. And I, I suppose for, for those either in, on the bench or in academia who are arguing in favor of a major questions doctrine, the, the, the burden is on them for the time being to really show that this is a neutral doctrine, um, at least neutral in, 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 in the, whatever the material respects are, right? Um, obviously, it's a, it's a substantive canon, so it weighs in favor of maybe individual liberty. Um, but it's, uh, it needs to be neutral in political terms. Maybe there'll be an article someday, it'll borrow from Bork, and they'll say, uh, neutral principles and some major questions, uh, problems or something. What's the basic rule of judicial restraint here that does prevent judges? What's the neutral principle that's going to prevent judges from applying this in a, a partisan or ideological way that, that shows just a lack of, of the right kind of neutrality for judges? And I don't just mean, I guess, for the major questions doctrine, but for substantive canons more broadly. What, you know, what would stop a, a judge from announcing a, a privacy canon or, uh, you know, that basically is in service of, of what the judge sees as 14th Amendment values or other constitutional values? How do you actually constrain judges from carrying out their proper, to carry out their proper constitutional role and not go on adventures of imposing their own value judgments on the judicial task? Well, first of all, I'm not, I'm not sure I have a problem with a, with a privacy uh, yeah. substantive canon. You, you, yeah. you say that like that's a bad thing, but uh, I, I'm not sure whether I have a problem with that. I, uh, I, might, I, I might not I just, either. I might, but, I, but I'd say, you know, I cite it as an example because we've just spent, you know, 40 years having huge constitutional fights over a constitutional right to privacy. And, you know, Justice Scalia, who you mentioned in your paper, he was wary of the non-delegation doctrine for reasons th- that he was wary of what other judges did with, the, say, the 14th Amendment. Um, that's that's why I sort of seize upon that example. 
Sure. Um, well, I, I, I will answer the question, I, even yeah. though uh, I, I kind of like the idea of a privacy uh, substantive canon. But uh, so I, what I think is that uh, we, we have to remember the constraints. There are constraints. There are important constraints on, on the judges and, and much more important constraints here than uh, I, I'm not an advocate of recognizing a right of privacy uh, in the Constitution. Uh, and I, I'm not sure that I'm an advocate of uh, recognizing a, a, a robust non-delegation doctrine in the Constitution either. I, I haven't taken a position on that in my writing. I don't take a position on this uh, in the paper. In fact, I say that this paper ought to appeal to people, even people who don't think that there's a, a robust non-delegation uh, doctrine in the uh, in the Constitution, so it, it's not a uh, th these are not constitutional rules. They're they're sub constitutional rules, uh, and that limits the judges in in several key respects. First of all, they only come into uh, play when the statute's ambiguous. Uh, so, if the statute is written clearly, uh, you you don't uh, you don't have this. Now, of course, uh, judges may always. You know, cheat a little bit and say a statute's ambiguous when it's not, but we have to understand, we have to accept, uh, or we have to assume good faith on the part of judges as much as possible. Uh, so I think judges that are, and, and when we don't, you can criticize them on that ground. So I think that you have to, um, you have to recognize that we're only, we're only in a, in a small universe of, uh, uh, of statutes and most statutes are relatively clear on most things. So we're, we're just talking about statutes that are, uh, ambiguous. Uh, so, so that's the um, the first limit, and then the second limit is one that I already mentioned, which is that uh, judges are not to use this to expand le legislation, only to um, to narrow it, to to read it more narrowly rather than more broadly. Uh, so, uh, judges are not going to be inventing additional rights, uh, not going to be inventing additional dis uh, uh, limitations, uh, or sorry inventing additional rules uh, that operate on private parties. That's, that, that isn't what substantive canons um, would do, would allow them to do. Uh, so that, that limits judges as well. Uh, and then the third part is that uh, Congress, because it's subconstitutional, uh, Congress can always override it if the judges get it wrong. Uh, that would be true of uh, a substantive canon protecting privacy, for example, just as it would be uh, for the major questions doctrine. So, uh, again, uh, judges can't uh, go on some uh, wild expeditions uh, without consequences, uh, unlike in the constitutional area, where uh, um, where none of these rules apply. Uh, and uh, you, you have to... Um, or none of these limitations apply. So you, I think you have to be very concerned about judges getting uh, way away from what they're supposed to be doing. But here, I guess I'm, I'm not too worried about it because uh, you see those uh, those three, uh, and there's probably others as well, but it goes to the most important, that, uh, that really would limit the effect of what judges can do with this idea. Getting back a little bit to the ground for creating canons, either linguistic or substantive, um, one thing you mentioned when you're talking about early court practice was that courts might have an obligation to uphold the honor of the nation. I think this came up in the context of the Charming Betsy canon. Is that something like where the president and the Congress and the courts have independent responsibilities to uphold the Constitution, or is that grounded somewhere else in your mind? Well, I, I'm sorry, I'm not entirely sure if I understand the question. Is we were talking about, uh, is, is the question about uh, upholding the Constitution, or, or is, is the question about uh, sort of, uh, uh, upholding the, the honor of the nation as, an, as not a constitutional value, but as a, uh, an international law value, if you want? Or, uh, That's part of why I ask. I'm wondering how to situate this responsibility. I'm looking at... I guess it's the departmental theory of government. If mm -hmm. all of the branches have the same duty to uphold the Constitution, do all of them have a similar role, I guess we can just say, in the international context to uphold the honor and dignity of the nation? And that is a source for these powers, and we can talk about that in the context of creating either a privacy canon or federalism or whatever else. Or is right. it, does it have a different basis? 
I think it does have a basis in that. I, I think that the, um, uh, and I guess when I was talking about Charming Betsy, I put it on a, a, a sort of a pragmatic international relations type uh, uh uh, grounding that uh you know you, you if you're if you're sort of a weak vulnerable nation in particular you don't want to be going around offending uh powerful countries by violating their international rights so i certainly think that's part of it but i also think what what you're talking about uh, the honor of the nation and so forth what was a very important concept in the uh 18th century probably more so than it is today even uh that uh, uh the uh, the respect for international law was a high calling, not not just sort of something pragmatic, although it was pragmatic as well. So the, I take your question then being to the various branches uh, have some kind of an obligation uh, to uh, respect the honor and uphold the honor of the country. And I think, yes, I think they do. I, I think that's the, the, cho- the, the, the foundation as a significant foundation of the Charlie Betsy canon. In fact, it, it, it is in the, you'll see language to that effect in the, uh, in the case itself. Uh, much more so, actually, that in that direction than the more pragmatic uh, approach. You don't, Marshall doesn't say in Charing Grazio, we got to be careful offending these countries because they'll, they'll send an army after us and what are we going to do? He doesn't say it that way, although that's certainly in the background. But he says it more, puts it more in the sense of uh, the uh, honor of the nation. The way the way you're putting it, uh, so you're really you're you're channeling Marshall there, and so I say yes. The the court sees it; it's having that um, that duty. Now, is that duty a constitutional duty? Um, I, I I think the answer to that is no. I I do not think the court has has a constitutional duty. Uh, so I don't think that the charming Betsy canon is constitutionally required. Uh, I think if the court wanted to abandon it, um, it could. Uh, but what I do think is that it's constitutionally allowed uh, f- as a matter of the original meaning of, of the judicial power. It's constitutionally allowed um, for the court to focus on um, on that value, the, the, the honor of the nation, and say that as the court, um, we, have the, uh, we have the obligation, again, not a constitutional obligation, but we, we, we think we, we have an obligation outside the Constitution. I think the way I would put it is uh, to, to make sure we don't erroneously impinge the uh, honor of the nation by reading a statute wrongly. Because, again, I, I see these substantive canons as, as being really centered on the idea of avoiding judicial error. So I think if Congress passes a law that's contrary to international law, and they're clear about that, and we have statutes, there, there are actually statutes that say, this shall be the rule, notwithstanding any rule of international law to the contrary. There, there actually are statutes like that. And, and so I think that's, if you have a statute like that, then I think the court has a duty to enforce it, a constitutional duty to enforce it that comes out of their judicial oath. But when we're talking about a situation where Congress is not clear, the court wants to make sure um, that it doesn't erroneously uh, undermine the, the honor of the nation. And, and again, that's, that's what the substantive canons are, are all about, is to the court not making a mistake when it's engaged in the difficult job of uh, construing an ambiguous statute. You know, that's an interesting way to put it. This is the this is the court trying to minimize error, or maybe minimize error and place the the, the remaining burden of error on one set of parties versus another. I mean, in that respect, you know, it reminds me maybe of the rule of lenity, right? The cr- ambiguous criminal laws will be construed in favor of the defendant. Um, there's a similar, actually, a similar canon that's used in the courts of veterans' claims. Uh, where they'll construe ambiguous rules in favor of the veteran who's seeking a veteran's benefit, and I, I guess you could say—I mean, you could you could you could justify that any number of reasons. Maybe the, the agencies uh, are in, or the Justice Department, whoever's prosecuting for the in case involving the rule of lenity, is in a better position to get Congress to clarify the statute for this in the say in for future cases. But in the meantime, we'll we'll construe this in favor of of the defendant, the veteran. Here, the the party challenging agency action. Am I am I going out too far on a limb, or is that is that is that a, a reasonable way to think about this? 
Yeah, I think that's right. I, I I'm actually not familiar with the uh, with the the veterans canon, uh, so yeah. I'd, I'd have to look into that before I, I said anything uh, real definitive about it. But it it, it sounds like I, I would uh, that could well be described as a substantive canon. Probably could be described as a linguistic canon too. Maybe I mean, maybe we assume the Congress wasn't want to be mean to veterans, and yeah. and and so. Um, but I think that oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, you're assuming that but, the Congress is generous to to veterans until yeah, proven otherwise. Right. Right. So, actually, I wanted to say something about the rule of lenity, though, which I do know yeah. something about. Yeah. Uh, so, the rule of lenity, I think, is arguably a substantive canon, uh, and, uh, and quite quite arguably uh, a substantive canon. And, indeed, I mentioned the rule of lenity in the paper. Uh, I don't put a whole lot of weight on it, because uh, there, there's actually some debate uh, about what the rule of lenity actually is. Uh, and Justice Barrett talks about the rule of lenity, and, and she says that what the rule of lenity does is it says, if you can't resolve uh, the ambiguity using all the other tools of interpretation, if it's just literally irresolvable ambiguity, that is, it's, it's not a 51-49 situation, but it's literally a 50-50 situation, uh, then the rule of lenity says, defend it wins. Now, other people don't understand the rule of lenity that way, though. In fact, uh, Justice Scalia did not. In, in his book with Brian Garner, he describes, uh, he and Garner describe the, uh, uh, the rule of lenity uh, as uh, having more bite than that, uh, and, and saying that uh, unless you can come to a, a level of reasonable confidence about what the statute means, uh, then you should apply it to favor the defendant. And and I think if you think about the rule of lenity that way, that is the Scalia-Garner way, uh, then it is a substantive canon, because I, I really don't think you can say with a straight face that Congress is uh, feels sorry for criminal defendants. Uh, so I think it, it, is, it is a substantive canon, uh, and it is justified uh, by the uh, concern over judicial error, once again, that we, we don't want to uh, punish someone uh, for conduct that Congress didn't intend to be punished. That, that's a, um, that, that's a, a, a bad error to make. Um, and it, it's better uh, when the statute's ambiguous to, to not punish someone. Again, if the court's wrong, it's correct, correctable by Congress. And you don't have the risk of, uh, you know, giving someone a, an unjust punishment. So I think the rule of lenity fits in right well with the idea of uh, substantive canons. The reason I didn't emphasize it in the paper was because I didn't want to get in too too far into this debate about what the rule of lenity actually did. Uh, and I thought that the Charming Betsy and the retroactivity canon were better examples. Yeah. Now, Mike, I promise the veterans canon, it is a thing. Uh, I, I remember thinking about it quite a lot a couple of years ago. There was a couple of cases that approached the Supreme Court, I think through the Court of Veterans Claims and maybe the Federal Circuit then, um, which seemed to tee up almost a collision between that canon, which is, you know, an anti-agency canon versus Chevron deference, which, of course, the pro-agency canon. It looked like for a little while, one of those cases might become the big Chevron case. And maybe that's a segue into my last question, uh, for me at least. Mike, um, we're recording this not long after the court heard oral arguments in Loper Bright and Relentless. And so much of that oral argument, as with so much of the debates around Chevron the last few decades, have been about how you distinguish an ambiguous statute from, a, from an unambiguous one. Um, Justice Kavanaugh, of course, talked about that oral argument. And he wrote about it in the Harvard Law Review a few years ago. Justice Kagan and others. Kagan didn't seem to think in one of the last big major questions cases, the Clean Power Plan case, that the Clean Air Act was, was ambiguous at all, at least not to a, in a way that would trigger the major questions doctrine. Um, obviously, the, the, the majority of the court uh, disagreed. So, how do you th how would you suggest we think about this in applying the major questions doctrine or other substantive canons? How do you really draw a line between ambiguous and unambiguous uh, statutes? And I'll give you thirty seconds. No, just kidding. Uh, I know it's I know it's a very very hard question. Uh, it would probably require another hour on the podcast. But just maybe to since you 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 do you know recognize that this doctrine comes into play for ambiguous statutes. How do you make sure that, that the category of ambiguity really is properly confined? 
Right. I, I thought you were actually going to ask me about the relationship between uh, uh, Chevron and Major Questions Doctrine, but I'm glad you didn't ask that question. So I'm not going to answer that question. Uh, so, uh, but on the ambiguous, uh, what makes a statute ambiguous? And I, I think that is a difficult question. Uh, and there are levels of ambiguity, obviously. So one one level of ambiguity is just that it's you know it's fifty fifty. It's irresolvable. You, you can't figure it out. The statute says says blah, and you just don't know what that means. And there's no way of figuring it out. Uh, so uh, that that's one level of ambiguity. But I don't. That's not what we're talking about with major questions. And so I think to the extent that Kagan was thinking that's what you mean by ambiguity, then that's right. I think. You know, that's that's not what major questions is doing. There's another level of um, where uh, you look at everything, and uh, it some stuff points one way, and some stuff points the other, and maybe you get yourself to like you know 51 percent or 55 percent, or but that's still this, the other side's still pretty strong there, you know. It's, uh, and so I think that uh, that situation uh, at, at minimum, I, I would say that that's an example of of a ambiguous or an unclear statute it's not it's not you could resolve it if you had to but wow you could really be wrong about that because it's it's and again i think of all these substance canons it's just about error prevention um and so if you're at you know 52 48 or something that that could pretty easily go the other way you think about like a poll it's within the margin of error uh, and so that's that's another way to think about ambiguity and then a further way to think about ambiguity, and this is what the court has said sometimes about, and pretty strongly about various substantive canons, is this something more like what they call a clear statement rule. Uh, and, and a clear statement rule is that uh, if it's ambiguous at all, that is, if, it's, if there's not a clear statement one way, then we go the other way. And this is actually the way that um, courts described some of the canons that I've been talking about, like Charming Betsy and like um, the anti-retroactivity uh, canon. Um, they, they said, we, we, won't, we won't construe the statute to have this effect unless it's very clear that that's what Congress intended. And if you read the court's major questions doctrine cases, uh, there is at least language there that supports that view of the major questions doctrine. Now, that's not Justice Barrett's view of the, of the major questions doctrine, and it may not be the view of, of five justices, but there, there is certainly language in there that, uh, that would invoke the major questions doctrine at that level of ambiguity. So, to tie this back to my paper, I think if that's what the court is saying about the major questions doctrine, that is, that it's in the nature of a clear statement rule, um, then that's actually within their power to do it, because the uh, the early canons were in the nature of clear statement rules. They didn't call them clear statement rules because we didn't have that. They didn't have that phrase in the nineteenth century. But if you look at the way Marshall talked about uh, the Charming Betsy canon, for example, uh, it really sounds like a clear statement rule. Uh, what we would call a clear statement rule. So that makes me think that the court does have the power to invoke um, even that level of ambiguity. Uh, and again, we're just, we want to be sure that we're right um, before we go off, the court says. We want to be sure that we we're right before we go off giving the statute this effect because of the consequences of having the effect. And, and if, if we're wrong the other direction, Congress can fix it. Well, since Adam gave you the hard question, I'll <laughs> end with something more open-ended. Is there anything else you think that people interested in administrative law or separation of powers should take away from your article that we haven't already discussed? Um, I, I think, and, and this may be part of a larger project that I undertake, uh, considering it, uh, I, I think that it, this is a piece of a bigger question about courts' power to not fully enforce law. So the major questions doctrine is a piece of the question about court's power to invoke substantive canons. And I see it, as I've said, I see it very similar, both to the old ones and also to more modern substantive canons like uh, federalism. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't see how exactly you could, you're, you could oppose the major questions doctrine, but be okay with those other ones, for example. Uh, I think it's, they're, they're sort of part of the same thing. But I also think that if you start looking around, uh, you see all sorts of situations in which courts don't fully enforce statutes. Uh, so I come from a foreign affairs law um, background, not administrative law background. So my examples tend to be foreign affairs. I think it's not a good, at all a coincidence that I got interested in this from the perspective of the Charing Bessie canon, which is one of the uh, principles of 
foreign affairs law. Um, but there are other areas in foreign affairs law where you see this uh, under enforcement. So uh, form nonconvenience doctrine is an example. Uh, that is, uh, you you bring a a, a claim uh, in U.S. court, uh, and the the U.S. court says, well, we think this would be better decided by some foreign court, so we're not going to decide this. We're going to send you off, and the foreign court may or may not decide it, and the foreign court may or may not use U.S. law to define to decide the, the claim. But the, the, the effect of it is that the, the U.S. court does not decide a claim, potentially does not decide a claim, uh, that's brought under U.S. law. Uh, and what gives the court the power to do that? Uh, if the court has an obligation uh, to uphold the Constitution, including constitutionally passed statutes, wh- where where does it get the power to do that? Uh, I'm not saying it doesn't have the power, but I'm saying that that's a question. Of, and, and if you look around, and I, I won't run through a bunch of examples, but uh, I'll leave it to the audience to see how many you can think of, of these, where uh, courts uh, under-enforce uh, statutes in the service of some other value. Uh, and I think that it's worth thinking more comprehensively about uh, what gives the court the power to do that. Uh, and again, it's not to say that the court doesn't have the power. And the whole point of my paper is to say, at least in the case of substantive canons, it does have that power sometimes. Uh, so maybe these other doctrines are fine too, but we need to think about how they intersect with the judicial power and and not just assume that courts can say well we don't feel like hearing that claim or we don't feel like applying that statute in that way uh, so that that's a it's, it's a it's a bigger picture that this prompts me to think about well mike when you write that paper we will gladly workshop it uh, at the gray center i know you uh, you see yourself first and foremost not as a administrative law scholar but a foreign relations law scholar but we always accept converts here uh, and so grateful, uh, grateful for, for you writing this first paper, which again, we're very, very proud to have up on our website um, now, uh, Michael Ramsey's Originalist Defense of the Major Questions Doctrine. Uh, and thanks again for joining us uh, here on the podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me. And uh, thank you for having me, even though I continue to maintain that I am not an administrative law scholar. Uh, but uh, I'm glad that you're, you're open to, uh, to people that are not. And it's, uh, it's really been a pleasure with uh, working with the Gray Center uh, with, this, uh, with the roundtable and with the paper and the podcast. So, uh, so thanks very much for having me. This has been an episode of Gray Matters. If you enjoyed this discussion, check out all of our episodes on our website at administrativestate.gmu.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at AdLawCenter. Center.